If you would please open your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at verse 4 down to 10a. Uh, The middle part of verse 10, you'll notice that when you get to 10, um, if you're using the ESV and likely if you're using another version, you'll have verse 10 separated into two and the second part of verse 10 actually begins a new paragraph. So we'll be looking at verses 4 to 10a this morning. As we continue in a rather difficult, um, sometimes hard to hear chapter, uh, as we were talking about last week, Peter is rather militant in this chapter. This would be one of the more militant chapters in the New Testament. And uh, so he says some things that are hard to hear, um, perhaps hard to swallow. But we must listen carefully and we must give our hearts and minds to the Lord in obedience, our lives in obedience to Him, no matter what He says to us in His Word. We said last week as we were covering the first three verses that as far as false teachers, this is what this chapter is all about, these uh, false teachers will have a definite presence and definite influence in the church today. Their way is very devious. They are driven by evil desire. They are defiant. This is how far they will go. They are defiant to the Lord and they are destructive. Now, the five and a half verses that we're going to be learning from today get their start with the last sentence of verse three, which is what we concluded with last week. And this is where Peter says that these false teachers, in addition to those other things, these false teachers are damned. They are definite, devious, driven by evil desire, defiant and destructive, and lastly and justly, they are damned. In the second half of verse 3, Peter, speaking of the false teachers, pronounces their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Sometimes it seems as though these false teachers have a long, long, long career, decades upon decades. But though their destructive careers go on for so long, Peter is saying they are nearer to their destruction than when they first deceived. Now, in the meantime, do we ever envy them? I'm not saying that we would envy them for what they think they know or what they teach or whatever, but the the pursuit of pleasure that they are after, the all-out hedonism of their lives, and just the accumulation of the, the wealth and treasure of this present age, do we ever envy that well-being? I think often, even if we're not perhaps ready to admit it. I think often we are envious. Maybe we don't think of false teachers, but just the world in general and the accumulation of treasure and pleasure in this world. I think we often envy them. Like Asaph confessed. He said, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, For they have no pangs until death. Do we ever envy the world 
for its wealth and its pleasure? And do we feel sorry for us and for the few who are godly? Few, it seems. Peter is one of many authors in Scripture who says, don't feel sorry for yourself. And don't envy the false teachers or their followers. Don't envy the world. And in this passage that we're going to look at in a moment, verses 4 to 10a, he's going to tell us why. And why we must continue to trust in God. For God will judge the ungodly. He will save the godly. And you and I must trust in Him to the very end. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to ask His help. Father, so quickly, our minds stray from Your Word. Our hearts, as we were reminded earlier this morning, are prone to wander. And Lord, we feel it. And spiritually, we just get out of sorts. We lose our orientation on You and we look at the world and its success and its seeming happiness, the accumulation of wealth. And we're tempted to think that we have washed our hands all in vain. Father, but it's not in vain. And You give us every reason to trust and to hope in You. You are steadfast. You do not change. And Lord, the the ungodly who are going after all the pleasures of the world that they can, You will judge them. And those who are trusting in Christ alone and whose lives are changed by Your Holy Spirit, You will not fail to save. So I pray, Father, that each and every one here would Hope in Jesus. Take to heart the reassurance of Your Word and help us, Lord, to be faithful. Lord, I pray that You would give to me Your Holy Spirit as I preach that, Lord, I don't look in any way for any approval from men, but only praise from my God. And I'm not motivated, Lord, by good for me, any advantage to me, but only blessing for Your people. It's for these things that we ask together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read these verses together, beginning in verse 4. Actually, let me end, let me start with the end of verse 3, where Peter said, Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, If He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We must be very careful students of the past and not misinterpret it. 
sometimes we look at even catastrophe in our own day or the biblical cataclysms that are obviously in the past. And we, we think of these things as unconnected to anything else. We think of these catastrophes and cataclysm events as uh, being isolated. But Peter is showing to us they're not. They have, in fact, a very strong prophetic element. These cataclysms of the past that Peter is speaking about are showing to us the shape of the future. And, and here in this passage, Peter is giving to us, I think, two primary lessons. Number one, Peter is saying to us, even if you are the last godly person on the planet, don't change sides. Because God is going to judge the other side. No matter how strong they may be. Even if they are angels of heaven. No matter how many they may be. If it includes the whole world. God will judge all of those who continue in ungodliness without repentance. God has judged them in great power and He will do so again. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is that God has never failed to deliver those who deny themselves. He has never failed to save the godly. And He never will. And so we must continue to trust in Him. Even if they have been very, very few, God has never failed to save His people. God will judge the wicked. He will save the godly. And we must trust in Him. Now, you may have noticed how this is one long, awkward sentence. It really is. It's one, and it's reproduced uh, well in the English Standard Version from the original, if the goal is to keep that sentence, because in the original language it is one long sentence. Um, But it's one long conditional sentence. And Peter is drawing together a, a series of ifs. This is an if-then statement. If this has been true, then this will be true. So there's a a series of ifs here in which um, Peter is showing what God has done in the past. Um, he, He adds up together these three great judgments in the past with two small but hugely significant salvations. And he puts those together to draw a conclusion that begins in verse 9. So here are the the, the three events, the, the judgments combined with the salvations. In the first event, Peter recalls God's judgment of the angels who rebelled. In the second event, he recalls that God judged the world in the flood, although he preserved Noah. And in the third event, he reminds us that God judged, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah in fire, but he rescued Lot. So again, here's the, the sum of it, and we're going to get into the specifics. If God swept away the ungodly in the past, though they were many, and saved the godly, though they were few, then he will do so again. And we must trust in him. Let's look back at verse 4. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And I feel like I have to stop with that uh, tone. Here in this first event, Peter is speaking of God's judgment of angels who rebelled. And it's difficult to be certain what angelic sin Peter is referencing, which is a rather odd phrase when you think about it. Really, it sounds like an oxymoron, angelic sin. But that's what Peter is talking about. Again, it's difficult to know which event he is alluding to. There are two main interpretations. The first is that Peter is speaking of the original rebellion of the angels with Satan against God while they were still in the kingdom of light. The other interpretation, possibility, is that Peter is referencing Genesis chapter 6. That in Genesis 6-4, it says, the sons of God came to the daughters of man and with them bore children. And the interpretation being that those sons of God is a reference to the angels. Now, I lean... I'll show you that it's not ultimately important which one it is, but I lean toward the first option. Um, I, I don't think that Peter is saying that there are angels right now actually confined to hell. I don't think that's what he is saying. And you might say, but that's what it says. I know that's what it says. But... Um, I'll tell you why I don't think that. First of all, there's a word here that is translated, cast them into hell. That's one word in the original. Cast them into hell. And that word is tartareo. It actually comes from the, the, the noun form of it is tartarus. Have you heard that word before? That was um, a word from Greek mythology. And it spoke of what's called the underworld, okay? So this word, uh, tartareo, is the only place that it's used in the New Testament. This is not the normal word for hell. And I don't think it should be translated hell because then we get this idea. Um, I think the translators are going a little far and not just translating, they're interpreting here. So... This is the only place that this word is used, and by using a word that's actually drawn from Greek mythology, I think that's indication that Peter is not speaking literally, that he's speaking metaphorically instead. I don't think he is saying that the angels were cast into this Tartarus. I think this is what he is saying. When Satan, with the angels rebelled against God in the beginning, they were cast out of heaven, the kingdom of light, into the domain of darkness. That is, they were committed to chains of gloomy darkness, as Peter says, which he, I believe he means, they were confirmed in their evil. There was no other option for them after this. There was no escape after this. There was no possibility for them for atonement or redemption. They were committed to these chains of punishment. 
Now, I could get into a lot more detail of why I don't think that Peter is speaking of Genesis 6-4, angels leaving um, their their natural life or, or mode and taking on flesh and um, having intercourse with women and producing children. I don't think that's the right interpretation. I could get into different reasons why. But ultimately, that it's not the point to decide which one is right. And so it doesn't matter if you disagree with me on my interpretation, or you agree, it doesn't matter. The point is this. The angel sinned, and in God's judgment, he is punishing them until the last day when they receive the final climactic judgment. That's the point. They sinned, and God in his justice is holding them under judgment until the last day. That's the first if. The second begins in verse 5. After mankind rebelled in Adam and was banished from the garden, the descendants of Adam didn't turn over a a new moral leaf, so to speak. They didn't reform. They only continued further and deeper in their rebellion against God. And it got to this point. It says in Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what was the result of that? What was God's judgment? It was a worldwide flood upon the land, upon the people. So Peter says in verse 5, here's our second if, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and again, I feel like I have to end on that, that note because he just continues to pile on the ifs. It doesn't matter whether the, the unrighteous or the ungodly are in heaven or upon earth. They can't escape the judgment of God. It doesn't matter whether they are as strong as the angels or as many as the whole world. The ungodly who do not repent cannot escape the judgment of God. In this, in the meantime, however, different from the angels who rebelled, there is a way out for this generation. There is a way out for the race of mankind. And it's through a single door. Just as it was for Noah's generation, salvation was through a single door. In the midst of that wicked generation, there was one man who was faithful to God. The Bible says he found favor with God he and his house, and on the day of God's wrath, there was deliverance for them. God, many, many years before the judgment came, told Noah just what to do. He must construct an ark for the salvation of him and his house, the, uh, all the different animal species, and for anyone who would repent. And sometimes when we, we tell the story, we think about what the world, how, how they must have reacted to the, the construction of this ark. Uh, I, I think, let me add this side note, we often say they don't understand because when Noah tells them of a flood of rain, it hadn't rained yet. But I think we're drawing a little too many assumptions there. I guess that's a possibility, but the Bible doesn't say that. It only speaks of no rain on the land during creation week. So we don't know if these many 
many centuries later if there was still no rain. But surely this was ludicrous to them. I mean, this massive ark, how's it going to get to the water? And what's the purpose? So I think we're very right to say that the world mocked them. And, and just imagine that this doesn't go on for several months or a few years, but one decade gives way to another until, quite literally, Noah and his ark project become the laughing stock of the century. A century plus this goes on. And Noah, in the meantime, Peter says he doesn't shut up. He keeps preaching. He is a herald, a preacher of righteousness. He is urging the people to repent and telling them, That on the day that the judgment falls, they must be in the door. But there is a haven of salvation inside the ark. But nobody outside of his house would believe. Nobody believed. Until it was too late. And God had shut the door. That door is clearly pointing forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. There is still only one door. It's through Jesus that we come to God. It's through Jesus that we may be saved. For He is the one who bore our judgment already. The gates opened up, the floodgates and the torrent of God's justice fell down upon His Son. At the cross, when Jesus died, He bore our sin. He paid our debt that we may be saved if we trust in Him, if we receive Him as our own Lord and Savior. We will be saved, not by works of our righteousness, but by His mercy. He saves us if we will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us and on the third day was raised up from the grave. But each must come before it's too late. Because the open door to salvation is not open forever. God's judgment will come. This brings us to the third event in verses 6 to 8. We go from the judgment of water to a judgment in fire. It says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. We'll stop right there, read verse 8 in a moment. The the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah was, was so great that there was not found ten. Do you remember Peter? Abraham's back and forth with God begging that God would spare the cities. And, he, and he, I think he started with a hundred, if there's a hundred righteous, and he, he slowly whittles it down. And then he says, Lord, just let me speak once more and I will shut my mouth. If there are ten, if there are ten righteous people, will you spare the cities? And the Lord says for ten, I will spare the cities. But there weren't ten. Lot was it. Lot was it. And we know that his, as we see in verse 8, his righteousness, and we know from the Genesis narrative too, His righteousness, his godliness was seriously compromised. Look at verse 8 again. Peter adds this parenthetical comment. He says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul 
over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I think that this here, Peter is inserting an implicit warning to the church not to envy the wicked and not to cozy up to them, not to conform to their thinking and, and, and believe in the, the promises of the evil one like the wicked have, that this present world can satisfy us or we can find salvation here on our own. Peter is warning the church. Look at what happened to Lot. How he tormented his own soul by choosing freely to dwell in the city of Sodom. And you can see how compromised he was when, I don't have time to get into all the details of the story, but he was willing to give up his own daughters at one point. And when he was told, you get out now, Lot still lingered. I feel like that's a good, um, an adequate description of so many within the church who are, who are trying to, at the same time as they have Christ, get what they can from the world too. Get the, the pleasures of the world that they possibly can because there is a lot of cool stuff out there. And Lot, his heart was compromised. And he lingered when he should have got out. Now there's a lot that also says he was a godly man. Um, one of the things is that obviously he listened to the, the clear warning of the angels who said judgment is coming down. And he warned people. He said, he said, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. It says in Genesis 19, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Just like with Noah's generation. For all of those who refused to repent, it seemed like judgment was nothing but a joke. They refused to take the predicament of their souls seriously. And this is, this is the deception of sin. This is how it affects us. That we refuse to take any possibility of repercussions, punishment from the Lord, judgment from His hand, actually, seriously. Oh, I've got time. I've got all the time in the world. I can change later when I choose to change. Let me have my fun. Let me have my pleasures now. When up, get out of the city. And not that we come right out of the world. We are in the world, but we are not of it. We can't just cozy up to the world and do what it is doing. The world is in a bad place. This predicament is serious. Now we, we come to the, the conclusion in verse 9. It's the then. The conclusion of the condition. Peter is saying, if these things are true, then so is this. That is, if God cast out the angels who rebelled, and if God judged the world in the flood but preserved Noah, and if God judged the cities with fire but rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how. 
to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's first of all look at the second part of verse 9 and then that last part in verse 10. Then we'll come back to what he says at the beginning of verse 9. Remember, Peter is pointing back to point forward. These events of the past have an unmistakable prophetic element to them. They show to us the shape of the future. So notice two things in particular. Beginning again, the last part of verse 9. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In other words, he is saying the punishment for the ungodly has already begun. Ahead of the last day. And often when we think about God's judgment, we think of plagues of locusts, we think of pestilence, we think of disease, we think of um, lightning from heaven, so to speak, you know, zap the, the rebellious. That's not how um, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven today. As Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 1. How, does, how has the punishment already begun? God has given them up to the sin of their desires. Paul says, He has given them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He has given them up to dishonorable passions. He has given them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That is, they want it, and God gives them over to their desire. He hands them over to their desire. So they, they are captive to their desire and the deception of the pleasures of sin. They are captive to those things. They're captive also to the lies of the enemy. The enemy says, there's nothing to answer for afterward. This is what Satan is saying. This is one of the lies that if you you know connect the dots of evolution, and which you connect the dots, it, it turns logically to atheism. So Satan's lie is there's nothing to answer for afterward because there's no one to answer to. And there is no afterward. So many people believe that lie. They're held captive to it. Others don't believe that lie. They just believe that you know, there is a God and there is an after, but he's not like that. He wouldn't judge, not my God. He wouldn't judge. The punishment has already begun even before the last day. The people are given up to the sin they want and held captive to these lies. Notice what Peter adds last. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Does that description in verse 10 sound like the contemporary culture? But don't forget, Peter's not talking about the culture. His focus is on the church. False teachers within the church and their followers. The connection to our day is very, very plain. It's the purveyors of the prosperity gospel. It's the rank-and-file false teacher on TBN. In their so-called gospel, they are the master. God is the lackey who is just there to serve their every whim. 
The truth is, for those false teachers, the devil is their master. They are the lackey. And they will share the devil's fate. Aren't you glad that we don't live as long as those in Noah's generation? Or even to a lesser extent, lots. I mean, can you imagine living in a culture where people had centuries to be as wicked as they pleased? I mean, we know how sin works. If you're not walking with the Lord and you're pursuing sin, well, yesterday's sin is not going to satisfy you today. You have to do more. You have to sin worse. You have to go deeper. So just imagine how bad a godless generation would become that lives centuries. Thank God that we only have the proverbial 80 years that Moses spoke of in the psalm. That's a mercy from the Lord. I'm sure that to them, it seemed like they would never die. It really did. I mean, if we think, you know, when we're on the younger side of things, oh, I've got all the time in the world. How much more that generation? I've got all the time in the world. Look at Methuselah. That dude's 900 and he's still living. I mean, that's just the way that a sinner thinks. It seemed like they would never die. I mean, you can be certain of that. But listen, those who were judged in the flood or those who were judged in that fire have been under the judgment of God much, much longer now than they ever were alive. And it only took a moment the judgment of God for them to realize that the centuries of sin weren't worth it at all. Because the pleasure of sin cannot compare to the pain of sin. To many who are in the world, we seem like nothing but self-righteous, regressive killjoys And we deserve all the belittling belittling that we get. But the world can belittle us all that it wants and it can do worse to us. But our hope in Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. It won't be disappointed. For as the past shows us the shape of the future, this is what we see in the beginning of verse 9. The Lord knows how to save the ungodly from trials. The Lord knows how to save or the godly, I feel like I said ungodly, did I? Sorry. The Lord knows how to save the godly from trials. It doesn't matter how many say that this is the right side of history, that broad road that they are taking leads to destruction. And it doesn't matter how few take the narrow road, that is the way that leads to life. That's the road that we must keep. The narrow road. When you think about this, Peter could have, Peter could have drawn from any number of episodes in that Old Testament era to prove to us that 
God will judge the wicked, no, how, no matter how strong or how many they may be, and God will save the godly. He could have drawn from all kinds of battles, right? You know, beginning with Abraham, if you remember his battle against a number of nations. And then he could have taken from uh, Moses and that Exodus generation through the judges and their conquest of Canaan and then into the monarchy and even to uh, King Hezekiah and his day and how little Judah was up against the empire of Assyria and so on. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't draw from all of those episodes. And I think it's because Abraham had his army. And Moses and Aaron, they had their army. Joshua had his army. The judges, the kings, they all had an army. But Peter is isolating these episodes because now the godly are so very few. There's hardly anyone. And yet... God knew how to save them. And he did whatever it took to save them. Though they could have been lost in the the shuffle of the great godless numbers, God didn't miss them. God didn't forget them. He stayed with them. He doesn't miss a single one who takes the narrow road, even if they walk alone. If all the godly end up gone, and it's just you and your house left. God's not going to leave you. God will not fail to save you. Until you die or Christ returns to take us out of this world, God will not let the light of your godliness go out. He won't let it happen. He will move heaven and earth to save just one of his And even if the whole world is a big write-off, he will come to save just one of his. That's what happened with Noah. And that's what happened with Lot. There was no one else, and they were saved. And so God will not fail to save you. God will judge the wicked. He will save the godly. And we must trust in him all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, the history of the world gives us a very clear indication of what is going to happen on the last day. As you have been just to judge those who persist in rebellion. So on the last day when Christ comes, there will be judgment. And as you have always proven yourself merciful to keep a remnant for your name and for the kingdom of Jesus, so you will have a remnant in the end And you will not fail to save those trusting in Christ who have by the Spirit become godly. Father, I pray that we would all take this predicament of the world seriously. 
Lord, for one, to give us a burden for those who are lost. Help us, Lord, to feel very deeply what will happen to those who are deceived. I pray also that we would have a sense of urgency about us. Take very seriously, Father, that the time will end. That that last day is going to come and the door will shut and there will be no more opportunity to be saved. So I pray that we would be urgent about spreading in love the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And use us, O Lord, to save many. In this meantime, as we wait for Christ, help us to keep looking to Him and keep following faithfully. O Lord, we cannot be faithful in our strength. You must strengthen us. We can't keep ourselves with Christ. You must hold on to us. And by the promise of your word, we know that you will. And so we praise you and we thank you and we hope all in you. In Jesus' name, amen.